I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Dan O'Brien joins me again. The distinguished playwright and poet has just published a memoir from Scarsdale. It's not just a beautifully written book, but it's candid, honest, and insightful. And it's not just those things when the writer thinks about himself and his upbringing, but he channels that sensitivity when pondering the lives of those around him growing up, his siblings and his parents. At the age of 12, Dan's older brother attempts suicide soon after. The attitude of Dan's mother and father is to uh, not say anything. There's uh, no talk about it and certainly no reference about it to others. This repression has consequences on Dan and his siblings alike. Soon after this trauma, Dan develops obsessive-compulsive disorder. And having to contend with that amongst his parents' secrets and lies, not to mention undiagnosed mental illness, affects Dan's life and upbringing. It's uh, not until he discovers literature in the theater that he finds an escape of sorts. Dan's been on the podcast seven times in the last ten years. We've talked about his work as a playwright and poet. We've also talked about cancer, illness, marriage, fatherhood, and the estrangement from his parents. He works through some of that in this book, and to get the backstory, as it were, to get a sense of what Scarsdale, New York, was like for Dan growing up, explains a little bit about how complex we all are, thanks to our past and the people around us in those formative years. We'll talk about memory, too. Dan O'Brien has been recognized for his work as a writer with many accolades, among them a Guggenheim Fellowship for Drama, two Pen America Awards for Playwriting, and the U.K.'s uh, Fenton Aldenburg Poetry Prize. Visit danobryan.org for more information. This new book is published by Dalkey Archive Press. He joined me from Los Angeles two weeks ago. Please welcome back to the Plant Online program, Dan O'Brien. Mr. O'Brien, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Um, you, you talk in the book um, about why you wanted to write the book. And and this is something that you you didn't decide right away. You you, you took some time to think about it. And uh, there's a beautiful scene near the beginning of the book where um, you're asking yourself for a sign um, as to whether you're going to write this book or not. And um, you were heading off on vacation with your family. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it was. Oh man, it must have been about ten years ago. And we were going to London. It was actually for a work, sort of a work function yeah. for me. But my wife was pregnant with our first and, and only child. And, uh, yes, yeah, so, so in the book I describe how I was starting to research the book and get in touch with um, estranged relatives. And it felt kind of dangerous to um, stir up the ghosts or to kick the hornet's nest or mm-hmm. however you but however you want to think about it and i did i was I, this was a period where i was trying to learn uh tm transcendental meditation as a way to deal with my anxiety and i was saying my mantra on this plane as we descended into london and um i did i sort of asked the universe for a sign that that writing this book and uh you know researching the book was 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 the right thing for me to do with my life. Uh, and, yeah, and then I did feel like, I think it was that same day, well, actually I know it was that same day, um, when we had checked into a little uh, shabby chic hotel in Kensington in London and got off this rickety elevator and the door opened and right in front of me was this, was this very large print of a painting, an obscure painting, I think it's a pretty obscure painting, that I had grown up with uh, a print, a print of it in my uh, dining room as a kid, 
a, I guess, a romantic painting of Roman ruins from the, I believe, 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, maybe earlier. And, um, yeah, and it was really, but it, it was interesting that even though it felt like a sign, I didn't quite know what it meant because <laughs> I suppose I should have just taken it at face value. I asked for a sign and something um, surprising yeah. uh, connected to my family was smack dab in front of my face. Um, and uh, I suppose overall I did take it as encouragement that I should keep going. I bring it up because it... it um it says something. I mean, you you probably ha- had not seen that uh, work of art until that moment. You you may have seen it, but I, I guess you, you saw it at a point where you needed to see it um, in, in terms of, of, say, getting the sign that you needed. Um, but I bring it up because um, throughout the, the first third of the book, you talk about what your childhood home was like, specific rooms, specific um, uh, areas of the house. And you, you describe it in such um, minute detail um, that, yeah. that it had me thinking about memory and how I remember things and, and how a lot of us remember things. And um, I, I guess in, in the course of, of, of writing a memoir like this, you do have to mine your memory. And I'm wondering how reliable did you find it? I mean, did you need... Like, you know, when when people write things, they have to do some research. I mean, uh, when you're relying, say, on your own memory, um, what sort of research do you have to do? I mean, you, you mentioned a moment ago talking to a strange relatives again. Mm-hmm. I, I guess those yeah, are some things that prompt your, your memory, right? Yeah, there was, there was kind of two approaches that I took. One was something that felt vaguely journalistic, you know, and uh, tracking down relatives, um, some of whom were close relatives. I mean, my family yeah. is a family is a family that uh, is sort of plagued by estrangements and uh, disownings, and um, and uh, many of those people I didn't know why they had been estranged or disowned by my parents, uh, but I just stopped seeing them. You know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, some of them were siblings that, for complicated reasons, we had fallen out of um, touch. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did one approach was to almost feel like a journalist um, and having that frame, that framework of um, connecting with these people to talk about painful subjects, a painful or dysfunctional childhood, having the framework of the interview um, was hugely helpful to me. I, I, I'm sure I would have been too, you know, stressed out, frightened, um, to, to have some of these conversations without the excuse of, well, this is an interview, not just the excuse, but again, the framework. This is an interview, and it's, it's research for a book, uh, potentially. So that was helpful in a lot of ways. It was helpful in terms of gathering more information for a fuller picture of my childhood. Um, a childhood that was, because my parents were, um, in my opinion, significantly uh, mentally ill uh-huh. and untreated, there were a lot of secrets and lies uh, in my childhood and things that were just not spoken about. So I felt like I needed a lot of research from, you know, information from other people to help get a fuller picture, uh, to, to, to almost to solve the mystery um, of why my family was so unhappy. Um, so that was one approach, but at the same time, 
fairly soon after I started researching the book was when it was the, the year and a half in which my wife and I were both treated for cancer. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, treated after my wife. I was diagnosed the last day of her treatment for breast cancer. I was diagnosed with uh, stage four but treatable uh, uh, colon cancer. And I found that memories were coming back to me um, with, with just with the, uh, extreme vividness and specificity and minutia. You know, I, I yeah. think, as you said, there's a kind of minute detail to a lot of the memories. Um, and it felt at the time a bit like what must happen when people say they have a near-death experience and they see their life flashing before yeah. their eyes. Yeah. But, but in, in the case of something like cancer, you know, my treatment lasted nine months. Uh, it felt like a slow-motion version of that uh, experience, you know. And it really was unconscious. There was no conscious choice, you know. Okay, now that I'm in treatment for cancer, I'm going to concentrate on my childhood right. and yeah. try to yeah. figure out, you know, what, what, why it set me on a certain course in life or how it formed my psychology. Uh, it really did sort of uh, bubble up from from my uh, subconscious. Uh, so, so both things were happening. Kind of this this uh, research that, in pursuit of facts uh, and information, and something that felt uh, more private, internal, perhaps impressionistic. I, I tried to be curious about uh, things that I was unclear in my memory about because that was interesting to me too you know why certain memories would come back and perhaps some of them were inaccurate you know uh-huh. uh, sometimes it was interesting to see the tension between my interviews of relatives with my memory because sometimes um, what I remembered was not what they remembered which uh, is obvious and to be expected but it was interesting to me as a writer as an artist why certain things perhaps had been misremembered by me, um, and also just to accept, you know, as a writer, you know, it's a memoir as opposed to an autobiography. I, I really wanted to lean into the fact that the book, the storytelling, uh, is as much about memory, sort of the challenges of memory, the um, consolation mm-hmm. of memory, uh, and those are the sorts of memoirs that I've loved uh, over the years. No, it was something that the, the formative trauma in my childhood was witnessing my older brother, really witnessing the, the immediate aftermath of, a, of a, um, his attempt to take his life when he was 17 and I was 12. And uh, it, it, even from a young age, very soon after that event, I was aware of the strangeness of memory, especially in the midst of trauma, where certain, certain fragments of the memory were, were was burned into my... Uh, consciousness, uh, but a cohesive narrative was very difficult to hold on to uh, about just even that day and about yeah. those moments uh, when I when I witnessed um, what had happened. Uh, so the question of of how we remember, why we remember, has been you know is woven through the, the whole book. Yeah. I tend to at least. So so you were you as you just said you were twelve. When, when you, uh, in the aftermath of, of your uh, brother's suicide attempt. Um, I'm trying to figure out as I'm reading the book, um, you know, especially from, from the moment you're born, um, when it was that you figured out 
that your family wasn't, um, I hate to use the word normal, but it wasn't like the other families that, yeah. that you yeah. probably knew. Um, or, or, I mean, did, was there a moment where somebody told you, hey, um, Dan, I, I don't think um, things are right in your house even? It's such a, yeah, it's really interesting. I, I don't, um, I can't think of it like a specific moment when I had that sort of clarity. I think it was a years and not decades-long process of becoming consciously aware of um, what of something not being right or many things not being right uh, in my family. I knew intuitively, I think, as far back as I can remember. So, you know, as soon as I was kind of self-aware and, and conscious um, that, that something was wrong. I just didn't understand it. Um, I didn't understand, of course, mental illness. I didn't understand the trauma my parents had lived through. Um, I didn't even understand. You know, you grow up in any family, you don't have another family to compare it to. Right. So you sort of take for granted or take as a given. You know, for example, we never, my parents never used the word love in my family. Mm. No one ever said, I love you. Uh, no one ever even said goodnight, uh, you know, or, or often wouldn't even say goodbye. You know, it was a very emotionally um, damaged, stunted environment. And I'm, I'm sure at a certain age I just took that for granted, and it was a dawning realization, probably with adolescence and getting to uh, you know, know other families and getting to know yourself out in the world uh, to a greater degree that I started to um, have more perspective and see that other families weren't like this. And, of course, that other families, you know, uh, probably and, and certainly had, had more challenges mm-hmm. than ours. Yeah. But at first, yeah, you just sort of, um, this is the, the pond that you're born swimming in, you know. And um, and so what's interesting, I think, for the rest of one's life, you're sort of, um, you know, trying to tease apart uh, assumptions you've made, you are still making about life because of those formative childhood years. Yeah. In terms of how other people, yeah, go ahead. Near the end of the book. Um, you, you talk, uh, I think it's called Ache, I think is the title of the chapter. Um, and, yeah. and it's about um, how, uh, it's, it's this period of time where you're off to college and you're away from home, you're away from your family, where you realize that, that um, this ache that you feel, that you, that, that you, you realize you've had, uh, seems to go away when you're separated from your family. Um, and... Um, I kept thinking about that because it it it, um, it suggests that, that that maybe the the home life was was the cause of this ache and and you realize that once you're away once you're at college and you're you're uh, uh, writing and you're you're uh, involved with the theater um, and you're you're pursuing things that that um, that you're good at that you like that maybe. Um, there's another world out there, if, if you will, and that you did yeah, need. There was def- there, you yeah, needed there was that time away, right? Yes, there, I mean, there was definitely a big change for me once I was uh, lucky enough, privileged enough to go to college. One of the things I found out through researching the book was that my grandfather had secretly paid for me to go to college. 
because uh, my parents couldn't afford. I'm one of six kids, and, and somehow most of us went to college. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, my grandfather was kind of uh, propping us up financially over the years, um, including being able to get an education like that. So I was hugely lucky to go to you know liberal arts college in Vermont, Middlebury College. I went there because I wanted to be a writer, and I had this vague sense that Middlebury, which is connected to the Breadloaf Writers Conference, you know that this was this was a way you could become a writer. Um, and I also became active in the theater as a writer as, an, as well as an actor. And you're right, I did feel a, a great deal better uh, <laughs> in many ways. Yeah. Uh, my symptoms of um, so very soon after my brother's suicide attempt when I was 12, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder, and Writing, learning to write, starting to write, um, eased the symptoms, even while I was in high school and still living at home. But once I was in college, those symptoms really did recede. They were always there, and it was kind of a low simmer, uh-huh. as opposed to something, um, you know, much more clinically uh, destructive. Um, but that that chapter near the end of the book is, is you know, is in many ways about how there are many times where I thought that the ache or the pain of my childhood was gone, uh, was in the past, and found, to my chagrin, like many people do in their adulthood, that when there are other challenges in your adult life, whether it's, you know, relationship challenges, career, what have you, um, that a lot of, uh, that the pain, the childhood pain seems to come back, sometimes Mm -hmm. in a different form. Perhaps it's simply the way your brain is trying to deal with the adult challenges uh, is similar um, to to how you um, survived your childhood um, challenges. So, but yeah, I would say on the on the surface, um, and really largely until my early thirties, I did feel like the ache of my childhood was in the past, and uh, you know it really came back in my early thirties because my older brother who. Um, was somewhat estranged, mm-hmm. who, who was actually um, uh, unequivocally estranged from my family, uh, came back into our lives because he had to be hospitalized again for severe depression. And my parents and my family really seemed to kind of self-destruct or implode. And it was like um, you know something that had been repressed, which was my brother's problems, as well as everyone's problems in my family, uh, had been uh, had somehow suddenly come back to life. Now you know, 20 years later, almost 20 years later, and uh, it led to for me my obsessive compulsive symptoms suddenly um, came back. Uh, it led to my family disowning me for mm-hmm. reasons that I've never had any clear you know explanation about. And um, so, yeah, you know, I was interested in the book. You know, the book is mostly about my childhood years, but I did want to, in a kind of kaleidoscopic chapter near the end of the book, show how my childhood uh, continued into my adulthood and continues still. Dan, did you ever watch Mad Men? I'm ashamed to say I haven't. I feel like... I've soaked up. It, you know, it's been such a huge part of the culture. I feel like I've soaked it up. I've never, no, I've never actually watched it. So, so there's a, there's a, um, 
Um, I, it's, a, it's one of my favorite shows ever. I think, you know, it's up there with Succession and, and The Sopranos. And right. um, So I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question about estrangement, but I'm going to try not to give away something from Mad Men in case you want to see it one day. Um, okay. the, 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 there's, <laughs> no spoilers. Yeah, there's a central character. The central character is the, the John Hamm uh, character, right. Don Draper. And he is somebody who we learn early on in the show that he's got uh, a past. And um, he's turned away from his past, if you will. And um, there's a, there's a, another central character, the Elizabeth Moss, Moss character. Um, she's a young, um, uh, she starts out as his secretary and then she moves up in the advertising world. And um, there's a moment where she faces a, a, a life crisis. And um, uh, he tells her uh, that um, it's okay to turn away from a part of your life uh, and it'll shock you at how easy it is. And uh, so, so th- this had me thinking as I was reading your book about estrangement, that... Um, some people might think that, that estrangement is inevitable in some some relationships, especially necessary in some relationships. Um, it can be seen as good. Um, in, in terms of uh, looking back at it and trying to look back at it as objectively as you can, Dan, um, do you think that, that – um, because it, it really was an odd childhood, and it, it was um, – yeah. These silences, these things that you 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 all didn't talk about, you know, were, were seriously damaging to to a lot of people. Um, yeah. Do you think some estrangement is good, though? I mean, do you think that 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 um, you do have to break off sometimes and and um, just move on from certain people? I do, I, I do. I you know, I was I, I thought of the estrangement or that happened uh, or the disowning. Again, my parents never used that word, but it was it was their it was their actions yeah. and their words that led to our estrangement. Um, I looked at it, even in the moment it happened, the moment that I knew I would never see them again, I, I understood it was a gift to me. Mm. Uh, it was a gift of, of you know, freedom, uh, a gift of honesty. I felt that I could be honest now, not just in my writing, but just, to myself and in, in my life, it was a gift in the sense that I didn't know if I would have ever, of my own volition, chosen to break away from them completely, because I was so enmeshed in a kind of uh, masochistic role of, of seeing myself as a savior uh, via my art uh, for my family's suffering. Um, so even though it was an extremely painful event and it led to uh, really years of a certain amount of pain as I adjusted to a life without, uh, essentially without a family, although I am not somewhat close with a younger sibling. Yeah, um, it, yeah in the moment and overall, it, it, it's been a gift. And it's been interesting over the years to get to know somewhat through my writing other people who've experienced um, an estrangement, you know, from their family of origin and, uh, you know, how for how many people it, it has often been 
um, something that has led to positive change and growth in their life. It's interesting, you know, it still is at the same time very much a social taboo. Yeah. Um, and it's been interesting over the years because now, you know, I've, 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 been with, I've been without my family of origin for 17 years. Mm-hmm. But for the first, you know, many years, it was um, surprising to me how many people, friends, sometimes close friends, um, just assumed that there'd be a reconciliation between myself yeah. and my family and would inquire after it or would ask, oh, are, they, you know, are you back together? Have you, have you uh, patched things up? That sort of thing. And on one hand, I completely understand why they would say that because if they came from a more functional, i.e. loving family, uh, that would be the way things hopefully would progress, you know. Um, but for many families, as, as, as you um, uh, suggested in your question, for many families and relationships, that's not, that's not possible. You know, and uh, sometimes there are people that are that are so uh, damaged themselves, whether that's through uh, or for for whatever reason, they're just it's an abusive relationship, either emotionally, verbally, physically, sexually. You know, not every family um, needs to and should continue uh, as it was when the children were being raised. Yeah, you know? and so so I then wonder, Dan. Um, Actually, before I ask that question, I just want to bring up a moment because it, it, there's a scene um, when um, you're confronted by your parents. I guess this is at, at one of your siblings' graduations. Um, and um, your wife, who I admire a great deal as, as, a, as an artist, as a, she came up on my YouTube the other day. Um, oh, did she? The, uh, the, 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 when she was on Family Feud. Oh right, yeah. Yeah, and I I loved watching her with Steve Harvey, and and uh, you know I'm, I'm willing her to to win the what was it ten thousand dollars. <laughs> she really choked, yeah. yeah. She really choked on that, but she had a good time, and I think she had great she had great chemistry. With yeah, Steve Harvey. She did, and um, there's a beautiful scene in the book where where you and your 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 parents are having this discussion, and she steps in, and um, my admiration for her just grew. Um, where she said, "This is about your. Um, this is about. I forget your brother's name now, but this is about his graduation." And um, you know, I couldn't help but think, um, you know, how important she's been in 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 this part of your life. Not you're moving from from your, your family to this new family that you've all created, the two of you. Yeah, I, sh- I mean, you know, one of the reasons I'm sure I was attracted to her in the first place all those years ago was uh, how different, um, in many ways, she was from uh, from the culture of my family and, and, and in some ways different from me, although I think out of everyone in my large family, um, I, have, I have a lot in common with her, in that she was and is, um, you know, you talk about the fight-or-flight response, she's she's fight. You know uh-huh. what I mean? She'll she will she will confront a problem head on, and uh, and so yeah. What was happening the last time I saw my parents was was a, a day in which my father and my mother, but certainly my father, was raging in the way he had always raged um, since we were children, mm-hmm. in a way that was fairly nonsensical and, and certainly frightening, and and I was doing everything I could to not slip back into feeling like a child, 
and behaving like a child and sort of um, absorbing uh, the verbal and emotional abuse. And uh, and all of my siblings that were in the house, many of them were there. They all receded to their rooms. Everyone was um, sort of playing out the family script of um, abuse, you know, where you sort of protect yourself and you retreat. And my wife happened to be in the house, and she and she did something that probably um, most people uh, who weren't conditioned for this sort of abuse would do. She stepped in and said, "What is you know what's happening? What is this? Mm-hmm. This is unacceptable. You know this is." And yeah, specifically, she was talking about the fact that it was my younger brother's um, graduation weekend from college, as well as his birthday, and so she was quite angry, uh, understandably, that his day was suddenly being marred this way. Underneath it all was also the time when my parents were dealing with my older brother's hospitalization Mm. again. And there was a lot of murky psychological, um, you know, acting out going on on the part of my parents. Um, Anytime there's been any sort of change in the family, a a college graduation, a, a child's marriage, uh, my parents have reacted, and this is as long as I've known them, with uh, episodes of paranoia, a delusional paranoia and anger, which is why my mother's estranged, was estranged from all of her sisters, and my father was estranged from his brothers. And, um, so I wasn't special uh, in this regard. It was just my turn mm. um, to be acted out upon or to be the scapegoat. I also think, you know, I can't prove this, but I also feel that the fact that I was a writer, I was writing about, um, to some degree, I was writing about my childhood even at that point. Uh, that was threatening to them, too. Now, I wasn't writing a memoir. I wasn't writing things that were um, being presented as nonfiction. Uh, but, you know, that was sort of um, building up in the background for many years that, Perhaps I couldn't be trusted, that I was a threat to the family in some fashion. Yeah. And um, so I think that was probably a, an ingredient in that in that difficult day of, of rupture. Um, but no, my wife was, you know, she's been, um, she's been uh, a corrective in a lot of ways. Heroic um, even, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. So, yeah, your your mother absolutely. does. Your mother does encourage you as as a, as a child because I guess she she sees that you have the, the, uh, an aptitude or a talent to, to write. Um, but uh, as you mentioned a, a few times during the book, she does say you will write about us eventually. And, and I guess it it, it um, I guess there was that worry on her part that you would write about her or or your father in a way that uh, would yeah. not that, that, that would affect them probably um, not positively yeah I would hear I would hear it fairly often this um, kind of you know almost sardonic or you know uh, she, she would say it often with a kind of sad sense of humor you know that um, while acknowledging that I was that I had a talent for writing, that in some ways she wanted me to be a writer. My mother was or presented herself as a, someone who aspired herself to mm, be right. a writer. And um, she w- did read a lot. A lot of what she read, you know, seemed very uh, 
I can be a little snobby. She would read a very mass market, you know, fiction. But occasionally she would read more literary um, work. And so that was a way we could connect. And in some ways she was probably doing that thing where a parent has um, ambitions they didn't um, pursue mm -hmm. and is uh, projecting it onto their, their child. Uh, but she was aware, and hence I was aware, that there was a... Uh, a paradox or a catch-22, you know, that in order to to uh, to be a writer, you have to be truthful. Even if you don't write nonfiction or memoir, um, you have to reveal something um, intrinsic about who you are and where you're from. And uh, so, yeah, she was she was she was always somewhat anxious about that. You know, in the years since, and I, I tried to allude to it in the book, I often had this sense from her that she simultaneously wanted me to write about her. Yeah. And I don't know how conscious this was, um, because she was, she would often remind me of, like, Amanda Wingfield from The Glass Menagerie, you know, a mother figure that was performing for their children, or in the case of Tennessee Williams in The Glass Menagerie, performing for her son, who's a young writer, an inspiring writer. And, um, you know, uh, perhaps trying to control the story that would be told about yeah. her because she was often telling us about her um, her, her difficult, very difficult childhood growing up in the same town where I grew up and um, you know maybe she couldn't help herself but it did seem like she was trying to instill in me uh, not just the desire to be a writer but, but the ability to tell her story or the responsibility to tell her story this could all be a justification that helps me um, feel okay about telling your story. But I, I, from a young age, I did feel like when she said, you know, don't write about us, or I know you're going to write about us anyway, it, it, there was um, there's some part of her that wanted to tell her story. It reminds me of when I was, um, you know, researching the book and uh, contacting relatives where some of them didn't want to talk to me, of yeah. course. Uh, and said so, or they just ignored my emails or phone calls. And one thing I learned, which I think any journalist learns, is sometimes you just have to be patient and uh, or, uh, persistent or gently persistent, and people will change their mind because they do want to tell their story. Uh, it may fill them with a certain amount of anxiety, and that's understandable, but, but they'll come around and say, you know what, I, I would like to give my perspective on things and um so yeah i did i did sense that growing up yeah um from my mother certainly that ambivalence about having a, a child who's a writer so so your your mother grew up in scarsdale as did you um and and the, the book is called from scarsdale um it, it, it comes across as in thinking about the book as a character itself it stands in for a, a lot of things um whether it's the abuse, the repression, certainly, um, it, um, it it's not like. A, well, it could be like a lot of the places that we we grew up in, but I mean, it, it's certainly not like the place that I grew up in. And um, you touch upon this in the book when you when you talk about your neighborhood and and what it was like growing up. Um, it was generally a, a, a white city, wasn't it? A white town, right? 
Yes, they, I mean almost entirely. Yeah. You know, I you'd have a few had a few friends who who um, had you know Asian heritage, and there were a few black kids in my high school. But yeah, it was it was almost entirely white, um, very Jewish. Uh-huh. I, you know, uh, when I was thirteen, I was going to bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah every weekend. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and and in the eighties, especially when I was. In, grade school, middle school, um, there was a large Japanese population when a lot of Japanese businesses were coming to New York mm-hmm. because Scarsdale is about 20 miles north of New York City. So it's it's one of the, or, uh, you know, used to be, I think it still is considered one of the more um, expensive, uh, fashionable commuter uh, towns outside of New York City. And so being from Scarsdale, that, that's something that you carry with you. I mean, you've lived on the West Coast now for a number of years, but um, uh, I guess your complexion suggests you're from the East, I guess. Is that, is that I mean, is that the reaction you get from people in California? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, because my wife's in TV and, uh, you know, there's so many, it can feel like you meet people that are that are all from somewhere else, uh, yeah. you know, and, and so sometimes it can feel like you don't meet a lot of people who grew up in Los Angeles. You know, where, where we live, we can often feel like we're mostly um, interacting with people who moved here uh, like we did for for work. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm often surprised, actually, how many, I probably shouldn't be, but how many people that work in TV or film grew up in the suburbs of New York or someplace like that. Um but no, Scarsdale's a yeah, yeah. It's a, I think it's fairly similar to, um, you know, it's not very different from where you, we live in Santa Monica right now. You know, it's it's not very different probably from any upper middle class um, suburb of a major city. Uh, it's just that I think because it's New York and it has a certain history, Scarsdale does have. It used to have. I just met somebody the other the other, uh, the other day out here who's, who grew up, we discovered she grew up in Scarsdale as well, mm. and she said two things very interesting to me. She said, "Do you tell people you're from Scarsdale?" <laughs> and because she doesn't, and yeah. she's you know she's my age. She's she, and now I went through a period where I didn't tell people where I would meet people and I'd say, "Oh, I'm from the suburbs of New York," or "I'm from Westchester." Because for a long time, especially when I was a kid, Scarsdale was sort of, you know, you'd hear about it in TV shows, be referenced on Friends or Seinfeld. It would be, um, oh, sometimes yeah. it would pop up in, in movies. And usually in this yeah. way of like, you know, uh, spoiled rich kids come from that place. And uh, I didn't feel I fit that category because my family had very little money and my parents didn't go to college and they... I felt like I was from a very strange, um, dysfunctional, haunted house in the middle of Scarsdale, yeah. uh, or really on the outskirts of Scarsdale. So, um, and I didn't want to be kind of, you know, uh, uh, sort of included in the stereotype. Um, but after many years, um, you know, I just now, I, of course, say where I, where I grew up. I even titled my memoir from Scarsdale. Um, to say like this is it. This is my story. It's, it's yeah. maybe it's not maybe it's not the expected um, childhood in Scarsdale. I should I should also say you know I'm interested how the perception of the town it might come across to a reader because as I say in the book you know so much of my experience of growing up 
was about feeling trapped within this house. Yeah. And the outside world of Scars, I was aware of sort of uh, the affluence and feeling separate from that, the pressure to achieve uh, in school and in college and business and that sort of thing. Uh, but really what I was struggling with felt like a much more uh, domestic, familial um, difficulty, you know. Uh, so in some ways, and in, in many ways, I felt like that town provided a way out for me because it did give me a good ex- education uh-huh. and it, it did help me find writing and, you know, develop myself as an artist and go to, be privileged enough to go to, a, um, you know, a great college and, and to have the, uh, you know, audacity and the, um, foolishness maybe to decide to be an artist, uh, you know, in my adult life, you know. So um, the environment of Scars, especially school, was in many ways a corrective to what was happening um, in, in my house. It provided, you know, to have teachers even in elementary school say to me, oh, you have a talent for this, you're, you're, you're a good writer. This is a funny or entertaining little story you've written, you know. That was huge to me because I had all of this internalized um, self-doubt, insecurity, uh, self-hatred, self-loathing that I didn't even understand from just being um, in this family. So, you know, the, to have teachers who, who said, you know, you have something yeah. um, that will connect you to other people, you know, that will um, that will take you out of this house and take you out of this dysfunctional relationship and help you create, you know, a life you can actually live. Um, that was huge for me. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think of it as, you know, I'm sure people have written books about how, you know, awful it is to grow up in an affluent town with snobby people and that sort of thing, but uh, that's, that's not really the focus for me in the book. Yeah, you... you, you um... I mean, it, it has its bad parts, but it, it has its good parts, and I think that's what any place that one grows up in, I think, right. you know, provides one. Um, at the end of, of um, writing this memoir and, and revealing what you need to reveal uh, to yourself about yourself, um, do you think you're better off for, for having done this? I mean, we started the conversation where, where, where you were looking for a sign as to whether you, you should do the book, and, and now that it's uh, published now and people have been reading it, are, are you better off for having done it? I think so. I mean, I think there's this, there's this sort of symbolic um, feeling of, okay, it's, it's, it's in the book. It's an object in the world. It's a story, for better or for worse. You know, that people can read or not read or connect to or not connect to. So there's a kind of finality to that. I, I'm not under any illusion that, you know, writing a book about the difficult cha- uh, childhood somehow uh, fixes, um, you know, the challenges of that childhood as they mm-hmm. exist in your life, you know, um, in some sort of magic way. But it does give me a sense of, um, you know, a chapter. A major chapter is, is closed, is over in my life. Um, I think, you know, the other feeling I have is, is simply that, you know, it didn't solve the mystery of my childhood. Writing the book, researching the book didn't solve, didn't give me some easy 
singular answer for why things were the way they were. But as I said earlier, it gave me a lot a fuller picture, a lot, a lot of context, and um, it answered smaller mysteries for me. And um, and did give me more, has given me more um, empathy uh, for my parents, mm-hmm. um, which is not, um, you know, it's not necessarily the same as forgiveness. Uh, but it's certainly, you know, I, I can see them uh, as more fully dimensional human beings. And, um, and I can feel, um, you know, more love for them, even if I, even as I recognize that they can't be a part of my life, mm. um, because, you know, they will continue to be abusive. Um, but that, you know, that was a gift just in terms of my own psychology, you yeah. know, to be able to work through 10 years ago, a phase in my life where I'm sure I felt more hurt bewilderment, anger, uh, humiliation, you know, being disowned, you feel on a very deep level humiliated, even if the world doesn't really know about it. You feel like there must be something terribly wrong with you if the people that gave birth to you have cast you out. And to then, you know, get a place now um, where I feel more understanding and love, you know, that that's, um, I'm grateful for that, so I'm happy that I've been able to to move through that process. And I also wrote it for, you know, to get back to the fact that most of the book was written, the rough draft of it was written during cancer treatment when I had a, you know, 5% chance of survival. You know, mm-hmm. it was, I was really writing it for my daughter. And um, even in remission, as I revised the book, I was still very conscious and still am very conscious of writing it uh, for her. And um, so I feel that just a simple but gratifying sense of accomplishment in that um, I've been able to do that, you know. Um, I'll wait till she's a little bit older or a lot older before I <laughs> before I voice yeah. the book on her. Yeah. Um, but that was that was really a motivating goal for me to, you know, to not only explain my life and where I came from, but for her to have a sense of the family that she doesn't know, you know, her extended family, her grandparents, um, most of her aunts and uncles on yeah. my side that she doesn't know and probably will never know. Um, you know, I wanted her to have this piece of the puzzle. What does she think of the the photo on the cover, the the photo of you as a child? She, <laughs> she she's, it's funny, I've asked her that a few times. I think she did say she thought we would have been friends. Oh, that's... Because we're about the same. Yeah. That photo, I think I'm about 12, and she's 10 now. And uh, and she even said it looks like her mind's over a friend of hers as a boy uh, in her class. And she said, oh, you know, it looks like him. And um, so, no, I think she she likes it. I think, like all kids looking at a photo of your parent, it's a bit... um, bewildering and strange to her you know yeah. to sort of say that that's the same person that's my dad you know looking like a skinny um kid without a beard and lots, lots of straight hair you know <laughs> um but uh no i i was i was moved by by that fact when that moment when she said uh that we would have been friends yeah dan it's a beautiful book and i i'm um so grateful to have read it first of all um oh, because thank i you gleaned a lot of wisdom that that um 
Well, throughout all of your writing, I've um, looked at my own life, critically or otherwise, um, through what I've read of you and your writing. So it, it, it is a gift, and, and, and congratulations on it. It's a very fine achievement. Um, you have to be very proud. Um, and again, I appreciate this chat. It's, it's nice to talk again. Thank you, Joe. That means um, that means the world to me, and I always love talking to you. I always had such uh, insightful questions and thoughts, and um, so I'm really uh, thankful for the time you gave to this book. The website for more is at danobrien.org. The book is called From Scarsdale. It's published by Dulkey Archive Press. Its author, Dan O'Brien, joined me on the line from Los Angeles and Vancouver. I'm Joseph Plantin.